Luke chapter 24, just to see what the Lord Jesus says uh, about finding him in the Old Testament. Luke 24 and 44. Because as the Lord Jesus speaks with his disciples after the resurrection, he basically told them that the entire of the Old Testament, that part of the Bible that was written prior to his coming into the world, that he was the subject of it, he was the focus of all of it. And what he said on those occasions wasn't new, because actually throughout his life here upon earth, he taught them from the Old Testament and explained to them how various passages from the Old Testament scriptures were actually about him. So he meets with them after the resurrection. He comes to them on this occasion in Luke chapter 24 and verse 44. Uh, and he says to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. And then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. And so this is a kind of a key verse that we can point to where the Lord Jesus Christ says that the Old Testament in all of its different parts is about him. And what's really interesting about this is he, he divides the Old Testament up into three different sections. He talks about the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. And this kind of distinction that he's making between these three different parts of the Old Testament isn't something which was unique to the Lord Jesus. This was something which every first century Jew and still today Jews understand. There's three parts to the Old Testament. There's the law. That's the instruction that God gave to Moses. That's the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis through to Deuteronomy. That's the law. Then there's the prophets. And the prophets isn't just about people like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel like that. The prophets also includes books like um, Joshua, Judges, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings. That, that, that's all prophetic scriptures where it's about prophets speaking the word of God to the people. And then the last division of the Bible is the writings. Um, the biggest part of the writings is the Psalms. But that includes other books like Proverbs, Chronicles, Daniel. And the books then that you've got in the Old Testament, they're the same as the books that we've got in our Old Testament, but they're just ordered up slightly differently. And so they have this really clear different dis uh, distinction between the different sections. And what the Lord Jesus does here then in Luke 24 is talk about these three sections, say that each part speaks by him. And he speaks about the law, he speaks about the prophets, and he speaks about the Psalms because they were the biggest book of the writing section. And so it's all pointing to him. And so what we've done over the past uh, few sessions when I've had an opportunity to speak about Christ in the Old Testament is actually look at some of those sections. We've looked at the law, that first section of the Old Testament. We've looked at how in the introductory parts of Genesis, Genesis chapter 3, for example, there's this promise of a seed of a woman that's going to crush the, the serpent's head. And then we're left wondering, well, who's this going to be? Then you come to Genesis chapter 12 and you discover actually the seed of the woman that's going to crush the serpent's head is the seed of Abraham. So that's the law. Then you fast forward a bit, and you're skipping over quite a lot, but you come to somewhere like 2 Samuel chapter 7 in the prophets. And then you've got God saying to King David that the promised seed, he's going to crush the head of the serpent, is going to be the seed of David. It's going to be a king that's going to reign forever and ever in David's line. Um, but what we haven't really considered in much detail is the Psalms. And obviously they're a massive section of the Old Testament and they speak an awful lot about the Lord Jesus and we've alluded to it but we haven't talked about it in much detail. 
And the reason why it's really important is because when you look at citations, quotations of the Old Testament from the New Testament, the Psalms is the book which is quoted most frequently. And if you just look at like allusions, general references, you discover that Psalms and Isaiah actually are the two most alluded to books um, in the New Testament that we've got. That's not surprising then that the Psalms are so prominent because the Psalms or the Psalter, as it's sometimes referred to, was the hymn book of first century Jews. You know what the way it is um, here for Christians? You know, hymns seep so deeply into the way that you talk, the way that you pray, that sometimes when I'm praying here on a Sunday morning, it'll just like a hymn will just come to my mind and I'll just start quoting hymns. That was the way the first century Jews were like with regards to the Psalms. The Psalms were so deeply embedded in their minds that they couldn't pray, they couldn't think, they couldn't talk to one another without quoting the Psalms. And so the early Christians, um, in the first century, those who were from a Jewish background would have been so saturated in the Psalms that when they're writing the New Testament, they just can't help but make allusions to the Psalms and think about, well, this describes what actually the Lord Jesus did. And, and they're thinking about what Jesus did in his life and they're saying, well, the Psalms describes this. And that was a natural thing for them to do because the Lord Jesus, as he lived here upon earth, he would have went to the temple with his, with his disciples, with his family, and even when he was at the synagogue, and he would have sang the Psalms. He was a faithful Jew. He would have sang each and every one of these Psalms out loud, and everyone would be listening, his disciples would be listening, and they're thinking to themselves, he's embodying these Psalms. He's singing them as his very own Psalms. He's taking them uh, to be true for himself. That kind of reaches its climax at the cross when the Lord Jesus Christ cries out, in the words of Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? And he's not making those words up. Those are direct quotation from the Psalms. What the Lord Jesus is doing is he's quoting the Psalms. And by doing that, he is showing that these are his Psalms. These are about him. And he's embodying their experience in a way which had never yet been seen in anybody else. And so the, the New Testament writers, they start thinking about what the Lord Jesus did. And the Psalms then come to the forefront. And they start quoting it and saying, well, actually, this Psalm describes what the Lord Jesus did. The question for us then is, were they using the Old Testament, were they using the Psalms properly? Like, is that what the Psalms really meant? Or are they just kind of ripping it out of context and saying, yeah, here's a verse, we're going to say that's about Jesus. Or are they being faithful to actually what the Old Testament scriptures are trying to convey? And what I want to suggest is actually they are being faithful to what the Old Testament's doing, to what the Psalms are actually doing. And what I want to do is I want to look at the way that the Psalms are structured, and then I want to look at one particular Psalm, and show that actually the Psalms, the Psalter is designed to point us to the Messiah. It's designed to point us to Jesus. So let's have a think then about how the Psalms are structured. And I must begin by confessing my indebtedness here to a chap called Gordon Wenham, who's wrote a little book called The Psalter Reclaimed, published by Crossway. And if you want to um, find more of these ideas, it's a book that I highly recommend. Uh, and he talks about the importance of considering the structure of the Psalms. But let me give you a bit of a preview of that uh, and think about the importance of how the Psalms are structured. Because 
The thing that you should know about the Psalms, the Psalter, is it's not just one book. It's divided up into five different books. Hopefully in your Bible it's indicated where those divisions are, but if not, I shall note those for you. Psalms 1, 3 to 41 is book 1. And hopefully, if you've got a good Bible, it should say above Psalm 1, book 1. Then when you get to the end of Psalm 41, at the start of Psalm 42, it should say book 2. And then 73 to 89 are book 3. 90 to 106 are book 4. And 107 to 150 are book 5. Uh, and I'll be referring back to those um, divisions afterwards, and I can give you those divisions again. And that's the way that the Hebrews, stru- the Jews structured the Psalter. It's five separate books. Now, when we think about that, it reminds, and don't worry if it's not in your Bible, it's, it's not a massive problem. Um, but you can actually pencil that in because it is the way that the Psalter's divided up. One of the key things at that point site to begin with is the fact that the book of the Psalms is an ordered book. It's kind of like when you turn to your hymn book and you look through it. You've got lots of individual hymns written at various different time points. But somebody at some point came along and collected them into different sections. So you'll have a section dealing with the worship of God. You'll have a section dealing with the the life of Christ. You'll have a section dealing with the death of Christ. You'll have another section dealing with the life of the church. And you've got these different sections which deal with different topics. When it comes to the Psalter, you've got these different units that were established to teach us different lessons. And so we need to think about, well, what might these different books actually be telling us? Now, the first thing is, there's, when we look at book one, for example, there's two psalms that begin it, and they're kind of different. Psalms one and two are kind of different from the rest of the psalms in book one, because they function as heading psalms. And the reason why we know that they're heading psalms is because the rest, most of the psalms in book one, psalms one to 41, are written by David, and it says off David in, this, in the little title just beneath where it says Psalm 3, it'll say a Psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. Psalm 4, for the director of music with stringed instruments, a Psalm of David and so on. But Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are different. They are kind of set apart as distinct. And the reason for this is because they are heading Psalms. And they then kind of are a prelude to the rest of the whole Psalter, 150 Psalms. So let's have a look at these. Um... Uh, And I'll just be referring to the NIV that I've got in front of me, but the points that I'll be making um, will be the same no matter what Bible you're using. Psalm 1, then, the psalmist describes somebody who doesn't walk in step with the wicked, but who delights in God's law. And he says that such a person, in contrast to the wicked, will be truly blessed by God. This is the, the really blessed person. And so the psalms begin with this description of a person who's blessed by God, And it's kind of saying that the aim of the book is to produce this kind of person, this kind of person who lives a life which is marked out by God's blessing. And then it describes the kind of person that that is. It's somebody whose delight is in the law of the Lord. Lord, And in his law, they meditate day and night. 
And it's saying, well, this is the kind of person that's going to be blessed by God. This is the kind of person that the Psalms are designed to produce. And how are they going to do that? Well, it's giving us songs to sing. It's giving us words to meditate on. So it's giving us a book which is explicitly designed to make us into this kind of person. And that's why Psalm 1 comes at the start telling us that this is, going, this is what it's going to do. It's going to produce this kind of character in our lives when we... Um, when we let it take root in our lives, and it's going to give, give us fruitfulness. We'll be like a tree planted by the streams of water. But then we proceed to the second psalm, and it introduces another theme. So the first psalm, it's got that kind of theme of the, the blessed life, the life that pleases God, and how it's focused on God's word. And then psalm 2 introduces another theme, and it, it asks the question, well, why do people rebel against God? Why do people rebel against God's chosen king? And, and so the psalmist says, well, why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his Messiah. Um, or his anointed, the word's just the same thing in Hebrew. And so from the very outset of the psalm, you've got this question about the Lord and about the Messiah. So it's explicitly um, a Messiah, a Christ-centered book. Uh, this is what it's doing. Um, and so what it does then, it assures us in the second psalm that even though people will try to work against God and his anointed king, that God's chosen king will prevail, God's chosen king will reign. Um, towards the end of my message, I want to come back to Psalm 2 and think about it in a little more detail. But for now, I want to just proceed through the rest of the psalms and think about how they fit together. But it's important then to think about this idea of the king in Psalm 2, because you see that really clearly. The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, his king. Again, verse 6, God says, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. And so you can imagine that maybe when, when David first wrote this, people would have sung it about David. And they would be singing that God has installed his king in Zion. And this is the king that we must respect and honour because it's the king that God has appointed. So yes, when it was first written, it probably would have been about David. But the final form of the Psalter wasn't put together until after the exile, when all of the kings of Israel and Judah had gone away. And that's the kind of distinction that's helpful to note. Because if you think about your hymn book, you'll have lots of individual hymns written at different points. Take the Believer's Hymn Book. Some of them were written in medieval times. Some of them written in the 19th century and so on. And eventually somebody comes along and puts them all together in a nice collection. Same way with the Psalms. Some of them were written at the time of David. Some of them were written way before that, like Moses, for example. But eventually somebody came along and put them all together. We don't know who it was. But we do know that it happened when there was no king. And that's important. Because if you can imagine... Um, people singing this when there is no king, then the question is, well, who are they singing it about? Uh, one of the ways I can show you that actually that the Psalms were written after there was no king is uh, through looking at um, places like Psalm 74. Uh, have a look just over at Psalm 74 in verse 5. And you can see that it, the Psalmist here is describing what happened when the temple was destroyed and this happened around 586 BC. It was the end of Judah. The temple's destroyed. What happened? Psalm 74, verse 5. The enemies come. They behaved like men wielding axes. 
to cut through a thicket of trees. They smashed all the carved panelling with their axes and hatchets, and they burned your sanctuary to the ground. They defiled the dwelling place of your name. What did they do? They destroyed the temple. And again, we can see uh, other evidence that the Psalms were put together after the exile. When you look at Psalm 137, a very famous Psalm, 137 um, often been sung in various popular songs by the rivers of Babylon where the people were taken exile we sat and wept when we remembered Zion so this was clearly written at a time when the people had been taken captive away to Babylon there was no king there was nobody ruling over them and still they're singing the Psalms. So at some point, we don't know when, but at some point after the exile, when there was no king, somebody came along and put these Psalms together in a particular order, put Psalm 2 at the start, along with Psalm 1, and said, this is a book that's going to tell us about songs to sing about the king. So who are they singing about? They're not singing about David. He's dead and gone. They're not singing about Solomon or any other king for that matter. They're singing about the king who's going to come. They're singing about the king that's been promised in the Old Testament. Remember previous weeks we looked at 2 Samuel 7. God promises David that there's going to come a king. He's going to sit on David's throne and he's going to rule over the entire world. And what this is doing then in the Psalms is telling us that these are the songs to sing about the coming king. Whatever they meant when they were first written then gets overwritten by what they mean now when they're written about the coming king. And that's what they're ultimately about. So at the start of the Psalms then, just to recap, we've got Psalm 1 saying, sing these songs to lead a godly life. Psalm 2, the second header says, sing these Psalms as you wait for the coming of the king that God's promised. And so then the rest of the Psalter starts to flesh out what it means to wait for this coming king. It puts some meat on the bones. So Psalm 2 talks about this coming king that's going to reign. But as soon as you get into Psalm 3, that's the start of book 1, you discover that there's a bit of a problem. We don't discover that this is a king who instantly takes his reign. Psalm 3, the, the king says, Psalm of David, Lord, how many are my foes, how many rise up against me, many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. And as you go through the rest of book 1, Psalms 1, 3 to 41, what you discover is that this is a king who suffers and a king who is rejected by the world and even by his own people. And what Gordon Wenham suggests to us is that the editor of the Psalter is putting together book one, is wanting to describe for us the fact that before the king is going to reign, he must suffer. And I think that makes perfect sense. Because as you look through these Psalms in this first book, they're all about suffering. Um, they're all about the experience of the king who suffers prior to his reign. And I can imagine the Lord Jesus singing these psalms as a young man. And through these psalms, learning what his own experience would be like. And that becomes especially poignant when you get to like the end of book one, when you get to Psalm 41, for example. And it's terribly poignant because when you get to Psalm 41 and verse nine, at the close of book one, 
the Lord Jesus would have sung, even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread, has lifted up his heel against me or has turned against me. And the Lord Jesus would have sung that and that would have stung because he knew and he knew who it was who would eventually lift up his heel against him, turn against him, even though he was his close friend. And that's what Judas eventually did. And it hurt the Lord Jesus when that happened because he was a close friend, accompanying from three years. And so what we see then, as, as we look at these psalms, they describe the experience of the king and see the way that the Lord Jesus would have sung these psalms, they are about him. They become his psalms in a very real way. Whatever the original psalmist might have been intending, whatever David might have been intending when he's writing this down, gets, gets reshaped when it gets put together in one book as the psalms because it's no longer about David then. It's about David's greater son. It's about the Lord Jesus and this becomes his experience. Then book two, Psalms 42 through to 72 they largely continue to focus on David, but start to go beyond David to start to think about Solomon. And you see that very particularly in Psalm 45, where you've got this wedding psalm, which is probably written for Solomon on his wedding day. But again, um, starts to go beyond Solomon. And look at 72 in particular, and you'll see that at the, at the start of 72, in the title it says that it's addressed to Solomon, it's, it's of Solomon. Um, but again, even though David might have written this about Solomon, or someone else might have written up, up this about Solomon, when the Psalms are put together as the five-book collection in the exile, Solomon's dead, so there's no point singing this to Solomon anymore. It's about the coming king. And so as people would have sung Psalm 72 um, in the lead up to Christ's coming, they're thinking about the Messiah. And so when they're singing in Psalm 72 verse 1, endow the king with your justice, O God, the royal son with your righteousness, they're singing to God that he would exalt his king, his coming king, the Messiah. They longed for the one whom verse 8 describes as the one who will rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And they're longing for one to come. He's going to be like Solomon, but far greater. Skipping over then uh, to book 3, which is Psalm 73 to 89, we move to a different theme. Psalm 1, we see the king is going to suffer before his reign. Or sorry, um, book one, the, the king's going to suffer before he reigns. Book two, the king's going to be a greater than Solomon. Book three, there's a bit of a crisis. Because remember, there is no king. And people singing the Psalms would have been thinking, well, this is a bit of a problem. Um, God seems to not have answered his, his promises. God hasn't done what he said he was going to do. We don't have a king who's reigning over us. Psalm 73 opens with a crisis of somebody who struggles with the fact that the wicked seem to do well and God doesn't seem to keep his word. 
Psalm 74 puts it in more explicit language. And Psalm 74 verse 1 says, O God, why have you rejected us forever? Why does your anger smolder against the sheep of your pasture? And so this is the theme of book three. This kind of crisis of why hasn't God kept his promises? And this continues right the way through to the end of book three uh, in Psalm 89. And in Psalm 89... Uh, the psalmist comes to God and he, he says to God, look, God, you've made this promise. You've made a covenant with David. And he quotes the promise that God made to David in Psalm 89, verse 35. This is at the end of book three. And, so, and he quotes to God, once for all, I've sworn by my holiness and I will not lie to David that his line will continue forever and his throne endure before me like the sun. It will be established forever like the moon, the faithful witness in the sky. And then the psalmist comes in and says, but you've rejected You've spurned, you've been angry with your Messiah, your anointed one. You've renounced the covenant with your servant. You've defiled his crown in the dust. You've broken through all his walls and reduced his strongholds to ruin and so on. Psalm uh, book three then is the crisis. God's made these promises. He hasn't kept his word. So what's God going to do about it? And yet the very act of coming to God, presenting God's words back to God, saying, God, this is what you've promised. The very act of, of praying to God, of singing to God, is an indication of their faith, their acknowledgement that they know that God will keep his word. Yes, it seems like God's not keeping his word. Yes, it seems like everything has gone wrong. But still they're praying, still they're praising, because still they know that God has said that he will install his king and that's what they believe. So book four then, um, it covers Psalms 90 through to 106. And it moves from a theme of crisis to thinking about, well, what are we going to do about that crisis? God's promised a king, but it seems like he hasn't come true in that. And book four comes along then, and it begins with a word from Moses. Because the psalmist then start to think back to Moses and says, well, what can we learn about our current experience from the experience of God's people in the wilderness? God's people led by Moses. And he says, we can learn that God is faithful in the midst of his people's unfaithfulness. Yes, we might have been unfaithful. Yes, God might have scattered us among the nations. But God is always faithful. And so when it comes to Psalm 90, you've got this beautiful Psalm um, of Moses. And um, Psalm 90, verse 13, the psalmist cries out, Relent, Lord. How long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love, your steadfast love, your covenant love. And so the psalmist is drawing in Moses' experience of knowing that God is unfailing in his faithfulness even when his people have failed and this then is the theme that runs through book four psalms 93 to 106 um, and when we come to psalms 105 and 106 you've got a kind of little mini history of israel looking at their experience in psalm 106 verse 44 as we get to the end of book four you've got this wonderful note of hope where the psalmist says in Psalm 106 and verse 44, yet God took note of their distress when he heard their cry. 
For their sake he remembered his covenant, and out of his great love he relented. He caused all who held them captive to show them mercy. And this is a wonderful note of hope in book four, that even though God seems to have failed, actually God loves his people, and God will send his king to rule over them. Um, And God will care for his people. Then finally we come to book 5, Psalms 107, 3 to 150. And it's a book of joy, because it's rejoicing that God will keep his promises. And after a few Psalms of hope, we get to this wonderful description of the Messiah's triumph. Psalm 110, um, it rejoices because here we've got the king who will be even greater than David. Because this king that rules in Zion will not only be a king, but he'll also be a priest. Uh, Melchizedek was one of the early kings of Jerusalem, and he was both a king and a priest. And so the coming king that's going to reign in Jerusalem, is going to reign in Zion, he's going to be like that. He's going to be a king. He's going to care for his people. He's going to be a priest. He's going to provide for his people's spiritual needs. He's going to lead them to the presence of God. And so Psalm 110, you've got this wonderful, victorious view of the coming king. Um, And so Psalm 132, again, continues this note of triumph. Um, And when we look at Psalm 132, again, you can see in verse 17, God saying, here I will make here in, in Zion, Jerusalem, I will make a horn grow for David and set up a lamp for my anointed one. I will clothe his enemies with shame, but his head will be adorned with a radiant crown. And so, as we're looking through this final book, it's a book of joy, it's a book of victory, that the king will reign, that God will keep his promises. Right then. So that's a bit of a jetter through the the five books of the Psalter. And I realise that there's loose ends that I haven't tied together, and that's okay because it can be food for thought. But what I hope I have done is, in looking at the, and I want to look very briefly at Psalm 2 as well, but in looking at these five different books, what I hope I've done is show that the way that they're put together isn't haphazard, but it's actually a continuous look at what the coming king is going to be like. Book one, suffering king. Book two, greater than David, greater than Solomon. Book three, well, why hasn't God kept his promise? Book four, it starts to um, look back at Moses' experience that people in the past and say, well, actually, God will keep his promise. His unfailing love is our hope. And book five, yes, the king will come. God will keep his promise. It's a book of victory and joy. So the whole book, the whole Psalter is put together in such a way as to always point us towards this coming king, um, the Lord Jesus. How does this fit then with us as we look back and think, well, the Lord Jesus has come. How do we treat this book? Actually, we treat it in a very similar way to the way it was sung at first. Because even though the Lord Jesus has come, we're still waiting for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're caught between the ages where the Lord Jesus Christ still hasn't come to demonstrate his reign here upon earth. That then means that books like, like, like book three, we've got this crisis. What's God doing? Why isn't he keeping his promise? actually are true for us as well. Our circumstances are slightly different, but the experience is true. Book four, that experience of, well, God's going to be faithful because he's always been faithful to his people. That's our experience as well. 
We know that God's not going to let us down. God will send his king. And so the experience of the Israelites singing these psalms ahead of the return of, ahead of the first coming of Christ is very similar to our experience singing them now ahead of the next return of Christ. Except our difference is that we know who it is. We know who we know that it's Jesus. We know what he's done and we can fill out everything that was hazy in the first singing of these psalms. And so we can sing them in a different way. And so that's why I think singing the psalms is really important, something which I think is really good that we do invention, that we do sing the psalms, because this is the book that God inspired for us to sing so that we would actually know how to sing to our king. But before I close, I want to reflect very briefly on Psalm 2, because I am conscious of the time, because I, I want to look just in detail, because that was a bit of a jet tour. Um, and what I, what I want to show in looking at Psalm 2 is that the reason why we look for Christ in the Old Testament isn't because we're just in a little hunt. So I was in Waterstones uh, the other day with Ezra and I was showing him the Where's Wally books and they're very fun. And that's, that's the way sometimes it can seem if we're looking for Christ in the Old Testament. We're looking through, oh, is, is he here? Is he here? Um, but the reason why we're looking for Christ isn't because it's a kind of intellectual adventure, but because it's actually going to strengthen our faith. We get to see who our Lord Jesus is, what he does, and what he has done. So we look at Psalm 2, and it fills us with confidence as we see who our king is that we sing about in the Psalms. And the psalmist writes in Psalm 2, Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let's break their chains and throw off their shackles. But the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. And then the king speaks in verse 7. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You'll break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. And then the psalmist comes in with this note of exhortation to us and says, therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son, or he will be angry, and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. So blessed are all who take refuge in him. When we look at this psalm, it divides neatly up into different sections. Verse 1 to 3, you've got the problem, you've got the rebellion of the nations that we see all around us today. People rebelling against God. But then in verses 4 to 6, we've got God's response. He laughs at all of that. Then in verses 7 through to 9, we've got the king, we've got the Messiah responding to what the, the Lord has said and shows that he is confident that God will do all that he said. And then in verses 10 through to 12, we've got this call for us to respond to the king and to uh, the position that God has given him. So in, the, in that first little section, verses 1 to 3, we see the nations plotting together. And like I said, that's what we see in the world around us. We see um, the nations conspiring together and they want to throw off the chains that the Lord has put upon them. People think about God's ways and God's instructions as like chains that bind them. 
They look at what the Lord Jesus is like and they think, well, that's just too restrictive. I don't want to be like that. It's like chains. And they want to burst those chains off, to throw off these shackles that chain them. And that's what they did to the Lord Jesus. When the Lord Jesus came into the world, people did what they always wanted to do to God. They got rid of the chains. They killed the Lord Jesus Christ. They killed the author of life because that's what they wanted to do to God. And so they, they showed what was in their hearts. And this became true in the experience of the Lord Jesus. And the early church recognized this because when you look at Acts chapter 4, for example, they quote Psalm 2 in prayer and say, well, this is what Herod did. This is what Pontius Pilate did. They met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in the city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. This is your anointed king. This is Jesus. And they've rebelled against you. But we need to see, as we sing a psalm like Psalm 2 in, in our day and age, that this kind of rebellion is something to expect. Don't be surprised that the world hates God, that the world hates Jesus, because that's what they've always done, and that's what they're always going to do. They don't want God's reign over them. And that's been the pattern of rebellion that's been going on since Babel ever to the present day. They want God's reign to be thwarted. But then in, in verses 4 through to 6 of Psalm 2, we've got God's response. He laughs at them. He scoffs at them. Sometimes our boys will throw a bit of a fit. Ezra's getting a bit older now, so it's not so good. But uh, Isaac, he, he's still pretty small. Seth, he, he's nice and small. If Seth throws a fit, it's, it's a little bit distressing, but it's also kind of cute. He'll be screaming and yelling, and you're just holding him there, and he can't do very much. He's just throwing a tantrum, and it's laughable to some extent. And in many ways, that's the perspective that God takes in the rebellion of this world. The nations of this world thrash about, want to get rid of God, but in so many ways, it's laughable because they cannot get rid of God. They cannot thwart God's purpose for his chosen king. And so God rebukes them and says that he has set his king on Zion, his holy mountain. In other words, God's saying that he gets to decide who's king. He gets to decide who rules the world, who rules the universe. And spiritually, this is true now. You look at the book of Hebrews and it says that we Christians have come to Mount Zion. We've come to our king who reigns at Mount Zion. And so spiritually this is true, but physically it will be true in a coming day when the Lord Jesus Christ comes to reign. Both senses are true. What this psalm means for us is that we should share God's perspective. When we see the world descending into chaos, people hating God, hating the Lord Jesus, we shouldn't throw up our hands in despair and say, oh, this is dreadful. Well, it is. But we should share God's perspective and recognize the stupidity of it all, the, the futility of it all. And God laughs at it because it's so empty and futile. God has installed his king. And who thinks that they can conquer God's purposes? Well, then in verses 7 through to 9, we, see, we hear the words of the king himself. It's the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he proclaims the Lord's decree. This is what God has said to him. It's really interesting then that because he's quoting God's words, he's showing that his confidence is in what God has said. God has said that he is the king. He says, you are my son. Today I've become your father. And we saw that on a previous occasion. This language of sonship and fatherhood is the language of covenant relationship. God's saying that he is the covenant father. He's going to protect 
and care for the covenant son. And what's the father then going to give the son as the covenant father? Well, he says, ask me, verse 8, and I will make the nations your inheritance and the end of the earth your possession. I'm going to give you the entire world, says the father to the son. And so the Lord Jesus will rule with a rod of iron to bring all rebellion to an end. And what we see here, the Lord Jesus Christ in these verses 7 through to 9, he's quoting God's because that's his confidence. The promise that the Father has given him is the assurance that everything will turn out as God has said. And that's still his confidence. And as the Lord Jesus Christ walked through life here upon earth, his confidence was entirely in God's word. He would have sung a psalm like this. And he would have sung verses 7 through to 9 and known that this is about him. His confidence, his faith was in what God had said. And this is then important for us to see. That just as the Lord Jesus banked on and currently banks on what God has said, so we too bank on what God has said. Has God said that he will install his king to reign and give him the entire world as an inheritance? Then we take that to the bank too. And we say the Lord Jesus banks on this, we're going to bank in this too. We know that he will reign. And no matter what goes on in the world around us, the Lord Jesus Christ is in charge. And then there's the call for response in verses 10 through to 12. The psalmist says, therefore, in view of God's reign, in view of the fact that he has installed his king in Zion, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Everybody that's under him, recognize his rule. And so they're told to kiss his son. The idea is that we serve him reverently, recognizing who he is and the position that God has given to him. And so in Psalm 1, you've got two ways set out before you. There's the way of blessing, the way of life, the way of fruitfulness. And then there's the way of the wicked that leads to destruction. And in Psalm 2, you get those same paths painted for us. But the paths aren't painted in terms of uh, Psalm 1 where it's about following the law of the Lord and rejecting the law of the Lord but it's painted in terms of do you submit to the king that God has appointed or do you reject that king that God has appointed um, it's complementary ways of seeing it Psalm 1 presents the two choices Psalm 2 presents the, the choices and it's only as we follow the, the way of the Lord and walk in his ways and only as we submit to his king that we experience God's blessing and joy in our lives and so the psalm then sets the, the scene for the following psalms. It tells us that there's a king that God's appointed. And no matter what rejection the king's going to experience and his people are going to experience, God will exalt his king. And so, next time you pick up the psalms, hopefully you'll start to think about, well, how does this point to the Lord Jesus? And we've seen that we've got these five different books all contributing to different aspects of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done and will do. But one of the most helpful ways of thinking about how does it point to Jesus is imagine the Lord Jesus singing that psalm. Um, imagine here upon earth as a young man picking up his psalter and, and singing that psalm. What did that psalm mean to him? And when we think about that question, then that starts to open up our minds as to actually what that psalm means as we think about it in a Christ-centered way. Um, Sometimes he sings it as a representative of his people. Sometimes people trip over the language of, of, of sinning in, in, the, in the Psalms. 
where sometimes the, the psalmist, the king, will say that he recognizes his sin, Psalm 51 and so on. How does the Lord Jesus sing that? He who did no sin. Well, it's because he, he takes upon himself the sin of his people. He bears their sin. He, was not, he had no sin of his own, but he bears that sin himself and he ultimately takes it to the cross and, and bears it away in his own body in the tree. Um, other psalms, he, he sings as the one who, who leads us, uh, the one who is our shepherd. Uh, other psalms, he sings as the one who's going to reign over us and provide for us. And as we, as we um, think about the Lord Jesus singing these psalms then, it points us to the ways in which we can actually see these psalms as ultimately being by him. And what I've tried to then show is that this isn't something that I'm imposing on the book. So that if a Jew comes to me and says, how is that psalm about Jesus? And I'm not, just, I'm not just trying to read Jesus into this. But that actually the way it's built is pointing to the king that's yet to come. Uh, the king that's going to reign. Uh, and we know that king. We know that he is the one who has come and will come again. And so that we read the, these psalms in the way that God intends. And in a way that strengthens and builds up our faith as we long for his return. So uh, let's commit our reading to the Lord and ask his blessing upon us. Father, we thank you for this wonderful book, this, these psalms, and how they point us to the Lord Jesus. And we remember how